Sometimes we find ourselves leading a large group of people that aren't used to working together. That happened to Tom Burbage, who was the general manager of the F-35 fighter jet. In this conversation, we explore how to bring together many stakeholders in order to do something bigger than any of them could have done alone. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 640. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Virtually every leader is charged with handling some level of complexity. We need to work across many stakeholders, often many different teams inside of an organization, and of course, also across organizations. Today's guest has a perspective that is so unique on how to handle the complexity of leadership and how to be able to set up a team effectively at the start to be able to achieve complex and important goals. I'm so glad to welcome Tom Burbage to the show. Tom retired from the Lockheed Martin Corporation in 2013. He was the president of the Lockheed Martin Aeronautical Systems Company and the executive VP and general manager for both the United States Air Force F-22 Raptor and the multi-service Allied Next Generation Fighter, the F-35. Prior to joining Lockheed, Tom was a naval aviator, completing the U.S. Navy Test Pilot School in 1975. He's accumulated more than 3,000 hours in 38 different types of military aircraft. As a reservist, he retired as a Navy captain in 1994. Tom has received numerous industry awards, including the U.S. Naval Academy Harvard Business Review Award for Ethical Leadership, the Aerospace Industry Personality of the Year, the Society of Automotive Engineers Leadership and Aerospace Award, and many others. He is also a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society in the United Kingdom. He is co-author, along with Betsy Clark and Adrian Pittman, of the book F-35, The Inside Story of the Lightning II. Tom, what a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you, Dave. It's my pleasure to be here with you. For those who've never worked in the defense industry, defense projects are long they're complicated, they're political, and just about every version of challenging. And that's just for the typical defense project. And the F-35 is not a typical project. You compare it to solving a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> what was different about the level of complexity of the F-35? There's a lot of different dimensions of the program, Dave. Probably the primary one was the fact that it was going to replace so many different airplanes in all three of the U.S. flying services. There's an Air Force version that takes off the long runways. There's a Marine Corps version that can land vertically. And there's a Navy version that needs the extra strength for catapults and arrested landing. So we're trying to design a family of airplanes that can operate in very different operating environments. But if you're sitting in the cockpit, you don't know which one you're in. So they all operate the same. They all fly essentially the same make it easy for training. That complexity got further complicated when the U.S. decided to allow closest allies to also participate in the design and development. So the program was launched with nine nations, each of which has their own Department of Defense, each of which has their own congressional equivalent, and uh, shepherding the program through the three services and then the nine partner countries was quite a complexity when the program was launched in October of 2001. 
three different variants of the aircraft, all the different countries involved, all the different governments involved. And then, of course, several companies involved, too, in addition to Lockheed Martin in a substantial way. And you write in the book, the prickliest difficulty seemed to be the eternal human and corporate tendency to slog ahead with business as usual. And I am curious, what were some of the elements of business as usual that were just not going to work with the F-35? Well, most of the corporations that were involved, and, and really the program changed the nature of the aerospace prime contractor business when it was when it moved from three participants to two. And the company that was no longer in the running was McDonnell Douglas. And if you recall, shortly after the decision, Boeing acquired McDonnell Douglas and they became the big commercial operation. Yeah. Similarly, Northrop Grumman and BA Systems joined Lockheed Martin, and that was our corporate team. So we had five of the major prime contractors actually involved in a couple of different teaming agreements. So we went to work right away trying to create a JSF unique culture, so to speak, where uh, you, you take off your company badge at the door and you put on your JSF badge. We're all the same. We did a couple of interesting experiments that we referred to as best athlete, where we looked across the partnering companies and said, this person is better at that than anybody we have in our own company, even though we were the prime contractor. And we gave that job to that person. So so best athlete was one of the terms that we sort of coined in the beginning. And it, and it wound up paying big dividends because the companies all felt personal ownership in what they were doing. We had large teams. We actually went from about maybe 180 people October 2001 in Fort Worth to about 4,000 in October 2002. That's a huge human resource problem. The government considered our number one risk, just our ability to staff the program. Turned out to not be that hard because everybody wanted to come work on it. Yeah. There's so much you just said right there that I really want to dive into on just the onboarding and number of employees. And 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 one of the, the key realities of this is these companies were used to being competitors with each other. And if I go a little further on your athlete sports analogy it's almost like in like baseball like all these different teams competing against each other and then they come together once a year for the all-star team and they all try to get together and work on one team and it was a little bit of that with JSF and like all these people who are used to competing having to essentially come together and work together that that's a really big obstacle to work across it is a big obstacle. And from a corporate perspective, it's even more challenging because most of them had airplanes in production that were going to be replaced by this aircraft. And so there was always the desire to continue production, to to press on, to delay F-35. We're building these other airplanes. We need to build them. That was true both in the United States with the ongoing fighter programs at Boeing and McDonnell Douglas. And it was also true in Europe with the Eurofighter. There were internal competitions so to speak, for budget primarily and for support and political support and everything else when you have other long-term programs in production that you're trying to sustain at the same time you're trying to pull together a team to launch the next project. It's always that internal challenge. You mentioned a few minutes ago that there was some doubt as to whether or not this was even possible. When you reflect on the early days, what's one mindset or reality that came up for you that made you wonder if this was even possible for the team to overcome? There was a couple of significant challenges. 
as the, the Marine Corps version of the airplane is what they refer to as short takeoff vertical landing or stovel. And that requires a very delicate balance of propulsion and weight and structure. And it was often viewed in the early days that that particular variant would cause a problem trying to optimize it at the same time trying to optimize the Air Force and the Navy version. There were also some inter-service rivalries that were going on because this would be a new capability for the Marines. Trying to combine the designs of a stealthy supersonic Stovall airplane had never been done in the history of aviation before. So that was a, a very significant technical challenge to just get the designs right on the three airplanes. And there were some hiccups in the program going as we went through the early design phases, trying to trying to figure all that out. Eventually, it all did come together, but it required a lot of support and a lot of leadership, if you will, by the services to continue the program. We had a couple of points in the program, as there are in every program, where we stared at ourselves in the mirror and we're making sure that we had what we needed to continue on because there were challenges that that we needed to overcome but hadn't overcome yet. So it was quite exciting in the first decade of the program trying to get all of the engineering, all of the new technologies integrated, all the software integrated. Very, very challenging technical program in addition to all the diplomatic and political issues that go with having three services and nine nations involved. Yeah, indeed. And and you mentioned that best athlete concept and it being one of the values of the program. And I thought it was really interesting that even before the contract was awarded, back when the test plane, the X-35, was being flown, the chief test pilot wasn't a Lockheed Martin employee. And that's really unusual in in something like this, isn't it? It, it is. And the, the fellow's name was Simon Hargraves. He was a BAE test pilot, a very experienced Stovall pilot. He had flown the Harrier in the, in the Falklands War. He was by far the most experienced contractor pilot in the group, which is why we selected him to be the chief pilot for that variant of the airplane. Another good example was a Northrop Grumman friend, Martin McLaughlin, uh, took over as the air vehicle lead on the program. And that's a position that's almost always reserved for the prime contractor. But Martin was the most experienced and best guy we had in the in the partnership. And uh, both gentlemen, when we interviewed them, were very almost emotional about the fact that they were able to take those jobs and they never expected to because normally the contractor, the prime contractor will take those major jobs. So it was a key part of the program. It, it was really important to hold, I thought, the team together that we shared responsibility and shared key positions. Do you recall what you did early on to set the tone for that? Because it happened in many key roles. It was very different than what had been done in the past. How did you begin just to look at who's the best person versus what company they're with? The airplane initially was divided up on a percentage basis. If you just look at work share, Lockheed Martin was the prime contractor, and we had about 70% of the program. And the other two, Northrop Grumman and BAE, shared about 30%. So we had an objective to try and get the work split, so to speak, roughly in those percentages across the air vehicle. Now, it's interesting that all of those companies also produced electronics. For example, Northrop Grumman produced the radar and BAE systems produced the electronic warfare system, but we didn't count that in the percentages. We were really trying to to apportion the the airframe design across the three participating companies. 
And when we looked at that, at that and we looked at the challenges of trying to get the overall design right, we were just entering, if you think about it, we were just entering the, the new computer age, the new distributed design tool age, the 3D design elements that we were able to connect these companies and other companies around the world once they joined the program in a common design database. So in other words, we were able to design the airplane geographically spread out around the world, but all working in the same design database. So the design would actually come together. Historically, when you've done that and large pieces come together in the production phase, they don't go together very well. And there's a lot of work that has to be done to to integrate them in production. In our case, uh, we wanted everything to be ready to go right into final assembly when it arrived in our factory in Fort Worth. And that's what would enable us to produce the airplane at at non-historical high-rate production numbers. We're, today, the airplane's producing about 150 airplanes a year. Prior to that, it was common to produce 12 or 24 a year. That's a really high number to have a, on a production line. But to meet that requirement, you had to have parts that were engineered to go together quickly. So we, in the process of putting together those teams, and remember, we were in a massive hiring mode at the same time. We looked at the most experienced people that we could put in place to help mentor and bring along the teams and integrate the teams as we went. And then we had we, we created this group called Wizards. And they, these were very experienced guys who had been involved in developing major fighter-type aircraft in the past. And we said, we want you to be a mentor. We want you to wander the floor. and We want you to talk to the young engineers. You're not going to have anybody reporting to you. And we actually... The area where we put their offices, we nicknamed it Hogwarts after the Harry Potter movie. <laughs> so we had the wizards in Hogwarts. But it, but it was a catchy thing. And, and the guys really, really helped keep, keep the program going when we were still trying to bring all these new people on board. One of our hiring objectives, corporate hiring objectives, was that 50% would be new college hires. And that was to keep the cost down on the engineering rate. So there's a lot of, it was, we had both mentoring and reverse mentoring. We had a lot of, Crusty old guys who were really good at designing airplanes, but not real good at computers. New kids coming in really understood the computer world, and then we had the the, the actual mentoring of the wizards. So it was a we tried to bring all those things together to try and get the program launched, get the team set up, and get all get off and running. Yeah, indeed. And you write in the book, the F-35 personnel ramp-up was swift and in some ways brutal. Worse, some of the pain was self-inflicted, at least for Lockheed Martin. In October of 2001, at Contract Award, the company had about 180 employees charging full or part-time to the program. One year later, 4,000 Lockheed Martin employees were working on the F-35 with similar massive hires at Partners, Northrop Grumman, and BAE Systems. And it's just, no one had really done something like this at this scale and complexity level before. And I think it was interesting, like, some of the things that you all did with onboarding in order to really make that work that was pretty unique and innovative in the defense industry. And one of the things was having a onboarding experience, a three-day program for employees as they came on in these large numbers. What did that look like? And what was the program trying to set as a tone at the start? Well, we started, we were bringing on about 120 people a week at Fort Worth and not quite that high a number, but percentage-wise, a high, high number at Northrop Grumman and BA to also. All of them would come to Fort Worth, including, the, by the way, the government 
program office was being formed at the same time. And the general in charge of it, Air Force General named Jack Hudson and I had worked together on F-22. And we basically brought the government program folks through our onboarding process too. So we had about 120 people coming through every week, a combination of Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, BAE, government. And we didn't have a place to do that. And I said, I need to have an onboarding center and I need to have one now. We wound up finding an old training center that was off off the campus and and started bringing people through there until we could get a an onboarding center actually constructed in inside the factory. But it became a process where people would come in. I would talk to every class. I was the first speaker to tell them how we had won the program, why it was so important. You were given the basics of the basics of the program management side. And then we would have experts come in and talk about what they were doing and what they would be expected to know and do when they got into the office environment. It was a real challenge because when you're bringing people on that fast, there's a tendency, and you're also trying to get work done, there's a tendency to to say, you go sit over there in the corner and when you're up to speed, let me know and I'll put you on a task, as opposed to making somebody productive right away. And that was our real challenge was to bring all these people on board and get them as productive as possible as quick as we could. And all the people that were going to own the new people that were coming through onboarding then came down and spent the last day with them to introduce them to the work environment they're going into. As As the process evolved, it improved and we made it better. And I mean, if you think about it, just the world of acronyms is is pretty daunting, if, particularly if you're a new college hire coming into into this new big project that's just starting up. There's a there's a tendency for acronyms to be used instead of English language, and and it, people would nod their head and like they understood what was happening, but they really didn't. So explaining the acronym process, trying to make people really understand what we needed them to do and how they could become productive quickly, was really the objective of it. And one of the really interesting things that struck me is that. You personally led those onboarding experiences at the very beginning, and I think there's a tendency in a lot of organizations to delegate that and have folks from HR or other parts of the organization who are taking care of that. You were there present for talking with almost all those people who came on board. I mean, despite the huge portfolio you had, what led to your decision to do that personally? My personal philosophy on leadership is it's it's about, it's about personal relationships number one and secondly it's really your position and when you're in a one of the top positions on a big project like that your your position becomes a barrier to really understanding what's going on in the program and you're the only one that can break that barrier down and i wanted people to know that this was a program where they were going to work hard there was going to be sacrifices made but it had a much higher meaning if we were successful in getting it all done. And th- I think those are key key things to have when you're trying to, to get a team, a really big global team together. When I was traveling, I would have one of my deputies, either my Northrop deputy or my BAE deputy, then would conduct the onboarding session. Because a lot of my time in the early days was, was getting the uh, partner nations on board. All of them were assured that they could compete for industrial participation in their government-to-government agreements. Well, that comes back to the contractor to make that happen. So so we had both things going on at the same time simultaneously. We had this big influx of new employees in our U.S. operations. At the same time, we're trying to find out what uh, international countries are going to join the program. It took them about a year to actually finalize their joining process. 
And then once they joined, how can we involve their industry in the process? So we're sort of working two ends of that question at the same time. But the deputies always did a great job. We were all on the same page. We basically would brief all the incoming folks. And I I would tell everybody, you know, look at the person on your right, look at the person on your left. You don't know anything about those people, but you need to find out about them. You're not going to know anything about them if you don't open the conversation and find out what their background is. You'd be surprised how qualified people are if you take the time to talk to them. So I thought it was important to talk to everybody, everybody that we could. And we had a number of forums. We had a breakfast with management. We had a, a vitality team where we would solicit feedback and questions. And we, we just tried to be as integrated as possible, with, particularly with the new employees that were coming on board so they didn't feel like they were just lost. One of the leaders in the program had a concept of one team, and that really was something that got taken up by the culture of the program. And I think it was interesting that there was the insistence that people didn't introduce themselves by company name, Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman or whichever company they were working with, but they actually introduced themselves as from JSF, Joint Strike Fighter, the program, the larger program. Right. That was that one team concept. That was key, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. We used to kid each other that you take off your company jersey and you put on your, your F-35 jersey when you come to work on F-35. And most people appreciated that. And and I think the leaders of the partner companies, the BA Northrop leaders, told their folks, don't don't introduce yourself as a Northrop person. Don't introduce yourself as a BA systems person. You're an F-35 person now. So so that was all part of the process of trying to get people to to really connect with the fact that this was a very unique... I mean, when you think about it, it it's as that project was as big as bigger than many companies. So it really was like joining a new company. Yeah. And as we said earlier, so different because these are people who were used to competing against each other, right? And when you think back to like the catalyst for what got that going, especially initially, was it as simple as asking people to change how they introduce themselves? Or were there other things too that helped that to just get started at every level? Well, I think having a common onboarding process was part of it. I think, um, you know, the the whole process, we, we, we did a couple of other things that were kind of interesting. We wanted to have behavioral norms. You know, it's a high stress environment when you're doing these things and you can lose your temper. It's easy to do that. And we we wanted to have a set of what we called F-35 behavioral norms. And there was about 10 of them. And we would have that as the opening chart whenever we would start our multi-site like this Zoom call, but it was at the time it was multi-site staff calls. And that would be the first chart in the deck and everybody would report on how they were doing and managing the behavioral norms. And and it helped. And we had, if you walked into a conference room in El Segundo, California, or one in Fort Worth, or one in Salisbury in the UK for BAE, the same exact same set of behavioral norms were posted on the wall. The exact same set of program objectives were pasted on the wall. It really didn't matter where you went. As we expanded that circle and we started including a lot of the engineering staff in Australia, we had a, we had a big team in Australia. They're quite, quite good at the stress engineering that we needed in the early days. You saw the same, the same listings and charts on their wall. So we tried to get as common ground as we could and basically get over the individual corporate cultures and even the individual national cultures by promoting this as a single team. You write, flare-ups were common, but usually were settled in a positive way in the spirit of the behavioral norms. And it's interesting hearing you describe that, that this superseded company culture, it superseded even national culture, in that this was 
established, but also it was the starting point of a conversation of every interaction. It was front and center. It wasn't just the stereotypical, we threw it on a wall somewhere and no one ever talks about it. But literally, it was the start of every conversation, like establishing those norms. And it sounds like by doing that, when the conflicts inevitably came up, you had something you could point back to in the moment and say, okay, let's go back to the bigger picture. We did. And we also tried to make light of some of the stress things. For instance, we had a our real senior engineers would catch somebody taking a shortcut on a design or find something that didn't fit together right. And so they, they coined this this little office they would take people in to discuss how they were doing as the woodshed. So you didn't want to get taken to the woodshed. If you got taken, it was like Hogwarts. If you want, if you got taken to the woodshed, you were probably going to have a a pretty direct discussion with a senior engineer on what you had done wrong. All constructive, but rather than just saying you're going to go in and get scolded, you know, it's like, okay, I got to go to the woodshed. So it became it became a again a process of of correcting without getting personal or inflammatory over it. There was a bunch at the highest levels of leadership too that you and your team did that set the tone for how this was going to work. And in particular, I thought it was interesting that you facilitated an exercise with Lockheed Martin leadership early on to design a mock cover of Fast Company magazine. <laughs> uh, tell me about that. And how did that evolve? And what was it? Well, um, I, I read, I still do read Fast Company. I think it's an interesting magazine. It tells you a lot about organizational dynamics and behavioral norms and stuff like that. But at the time, we were doing an offsite. We were still trying to get everybody. In fact, I don't think we had won the contract yet. It was what what it, what I was trying to do was impress on the small group that we still had. And it wasn't just Lockheed Martin. It was Lockheed Martin, a couple of BAE, a couple of Northrop guys. They were all in Fort Worth at the time. I was trying to impress on them that we were going to control our own destiny, whether we liked it or not. So I took a fast company. I called Fast Company. I said, would you mind if I did a mock-up of your cover? I don't want to violate any copyrights or anything. He said, no, that's fine. So so we made a cover and it basically had three futuristic drawings of an F-35 on it. And and I put headlines on it. And the date on the on the magazine was, this was in 2001, was in 2010. And so these were headlines that you, that could happen in the next 10 years that hadn't happened yet, obviously. So we, we uh, put it on a big poster and put it in, the, went out to a Mexican food restaurant, got a private room and put it up there. And we talked about what are the headlines that are going to be on that magazine cover in 10 years? Mm. Is, it, is it the F-35 crashed and burned? Is it the F-35 most successful program? What are the headlines? And we basically discussed that for the evening. Well, um, a female reporter came down to Fort Worth and was interviewing me after we had won, the, won and were starting the staffing up. And I mentioned this drill with the Fast Company cover, and she wrote it in her article in the New York Times. And the guy who was the CEO of Fast Company was riding the train into work in New York and was reading her article and said, holy cow, these guys are reading Fast Company. We need to go see what they're doing. So next thing I knew, we had a, a call and Fast Company wanted to send some photographers in and do a story about um, F-35. And so they did. I think there's a picture of this in the book. And they actually did a whole big spread. It was called the $200 billion gamble or $200 billion risk issue or something, which was, the, at the time, the projected cost of the program. And they took a bunch of pictures. They went around and they wrote a, it was a, quite a good article, quite a lengthy article that showed up actually in the Fast Company magazine. But that's how it happened. We, we did a mock-up and we were just going to do a, a dinner with 30 people and talk about the first 10 years of the program and what do we want to happen during those first 10 years. And it wound up being a leading to a big article in the Fast Company magazine. 
You write, This appreciative inquiry exercise started to focus everyone on the process of shaping future outcomes. It would be critical to success. What was so critical about it? It was to me. It was it was shaping the thought process of controlling our destiny. And again, the 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 program was a very challenging program. It had a number of setbacks. It had a number of super accomplishments, like all big programs do. But but in the end, you want to be able to have a vision of where you're trying to go, and and have a path to get there. And and people have to focus beyond the day to day work, beyond the woodshed, beyond beyond the day the daily stresses of the environment that they're working in and say there's a there's an ultimate objective out there and that's what we're marching towards there are some people there are still some people that have spent their entire careers on f35 and at, at great sacrifice it was not uncommon for seven day work weeks and 14 hour days during some of the high pressure maybe even more than that some of the high pressure periods so people have really i think lived by that credence of there's a there's an ultimate objective and we need to stay focused on the ultimate objective and not get too lost in the weeds one of the other high level things that you thought about early on was leadership offsites with the senior team and of course that's common practice in many organizations and certainly common practice in defense as well what wasn't common practice was inviting the customer in this case the government to come to leadership offsites and talk about problems and what the program was struggling with. And there were a number of folks on your executive leadership team that were not really excited about having the customer involved in that, but you had a different opinion on that. Well, they're part of the, they're a major part of the team, in my opinion. And there were some folks that wanted to operate within the contractor community and maybe not be as transparent as they should and I, I said we're not going to we're not going to do that we're not going to tolerate that the customer would come to the offsites there was a couple of really interesting ones one was lieutenant general mike howe who was the in charge of marine corps aviation came in he was the original program executive officer before the contract was awarded and then he moved on to a promotion in a higher level position but he was in charge of all marine corps aviation and he walked into the factory when we were having a particularly difficult time trying to meet our weight target on the Marine Corps Stovall jet. And he walked up in front of the crowd. I invited him to the all-hands meeting, and, and he put a picture of the new Marine Corps aircraft carrier, USS America was the name of it, I think, that was being built for the JSF. And he just put that picture up there and spoke from the heart and said, look, the future of the Marine Corps depends on you guys doing this and doing this right. It was a very, very uh, emotional rallying speech that I thought contributed a lot to getting us, keeping us on track and keeping us focused. But but yeah, the customer would always come to the offsites. And the very first offsite we had after we won the award was I sent a note to all the current fighter programs, including the Eurofighter, the, the Tornado, the Harrier, the F-18, F-15, and asked, said, if you were sitting where we are and you just won this big contract, what are some things that in retrospect, you would have done on your program that we maybe haven't thought about. And I didn't know if anybody would come or not. Well, they all showed up. Oh, wow. We all went into a conference room at the Worthington Hotel in downtown Fort Worth, and they all made a five or six chart presentation on what they would have, what they wish they had done or wish they had put in their proposal. And we took a lot away from that. We had the customer there with us when we did that and took a lot away from us, a lot away from those presentations that gave us kind of a heads up on these are things you're going to experience. And sure enough, there's nothing new about complex program management. The same kind of things happen when a specific technology doesn't mature at the rate you think it will, and it becomes a 
an issue or there's some kind of a technical breakthrough that's required or whatever it is. So those are all learning experiences. And, and it's one of the, I think, fundamentals of, of both leadership and followership is that you learn with everything you do and you harvest those lessons learned as they go. But that, that was a big lessons learned event for us. And two big things I hear there. One is the importance of the the top person setting something as a value. And then secondly, just the power of making an invitation. Like you described with those folks from prior programs, you made the invitation and they showed up. And I think sometimes like we're so quick to assume or think, oh, there's going to be this is going to be difficult. The stakeholder shouldn't be involved. What if we say the wrong thing? And all that's reality of the political stuff. And I'm sure you dealt with a lot of that. But it started with the tone, the value at the beginning of like, everyone's involved. All the stakeholders are here. They're all part of the conversation, even if it's difficult. And setting that tone was key. You know, just just making the org chart was a big challenge. And we took this, we took the strategy of of putting ourselves a couple of years in the future and what would the organization look like then after we had brought on all these people that we hadn't brought on yet. And then we we coined the term, we'll just turn the lights out in parts of it until we get to that stage of the program. But at least we have an idea of how the organization is supposed to work. And I mentioned General Jack Hudson earlier, but Jack and I sat together, the contractor and the customer side by side, and we went through the org chart and we named, put the names on it. And we wanted to make sure that the customer organization and the contractor organization were completely aligned. We didn't have stray stray inputs coming from different places. So, But that was, again, I think a good example of the teamwork that was required early on in the program to make sure that we had an executable set of human beings that could work together and knew what their responsibilities were and knew what was expected of them. It's such a fascinating program to learn from at every level, the successes, the challenges, as you mentioned, and there's so much more in the book. I mean, we're just we're just really looking at a couple of pages of some of the things that you and the team did at the start. So I hope folks will check out the book, if, especially if you find yourself leading or maybe at the start of a complex project or program that maybe spans teams, maybe even spans organizations. What a helpful place to be thinking of. Tom Burbage is co-author of F-35, The Inside Story of the Lightning II. Tom, thank you so much for your time and your work. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate the time. If this conversation with Tom was helpful to you, four related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 192, How to Create Team Guidelines. Susan Gerke was my guest on that episode. We talked about the process of establishing guidelines for a team for the very first time, perhaps a team coming together for the first time or you leading a new team or perhaps new members of a team coming in, regardless of which one of those it is, establishing guidelines up front can help. It's one of the most listened to and requested episodes in our library, episode 192 for that. I'd also recommend the conversation on episode 501 with Andrea Wannerstrand. We talked about how to build a coaching culture. Andrea, a past director for the International Coach Federation, also a leader at Microsoft previously overseeing a number of their initiatives on how to 
bring more of a coaching culture into Microsoft. She talked in detail in that conversation on her team and their programs, how they put them together, what they did step-by-step, not just for individuals and individual teams, but how to establish a more coach-like culture across a large organization, episode 501 for that conversation. I'd also recommend the work of Scott Keller and his colleagues at McKinsey in episode 585, How Top Leaders Influence Great Teamwork. One of their secrets of those top leaders is having a one-team mindset that was echoed in the work with Tom and his colleagues at F35 of the broader goal, not just across team and organization, but what's the big thing we're trying to achieve. Turns out that is something that is an important competency for many of the top leaders in being effective. Episode 585 for more on that. And then finally, I'd recommend the conversation with Jennifer Garvey Berger on episode 613, How to Lead Better Through Complexity. Jennifer's done a ton of work, her and her colleagues, on looking at complexity. Of course, more and more of us are being called upon to lead in complex situations, perhaps not as complex as F-35, but complex nonetheless, and that is increasingly becoming the work and the call of leadership today, episode 613, on how you can do better at leading through those complex environments. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. If you've not done this before, it is your window into a whole number of benefits inside a free membership. And one of those benefits is access, direct access to my own personal library. One thing I am doing every single week is I am tracking down articles, YouTube videos, other podcast episodes from other shows, other resources on the internet that I think will help you in your leadership development. And I'm passing along a small selection of those in the weekly leadership guide, which you get if you're a free member on email once a week. But they're all also archived and databased. So once you log into your free membership, just click on Dave's library. You're going to see my full database of thousands of items and resources over the years, not only databased, but searchable by topic. So if you're looking for a article or resource on something specific in a specific topic area, maybe around feedback. You can actually search by that and track down things from the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, New York Times, many of the other resources that I pull from regularly. It's just one of the many benefits inside of free membership. Go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership today. And perhaps you already have been a free member and you're looking for more. In that case, I'd invite you to look at Coaching for Leaders Plus. Coaching for Leaders Plus adds to the suite of benefits in addition to your free membership. And one of those benefits is access to the recordings of our monthly expert chats. I sit down with several of our members every single month, and we have a conversation with one of our guests who's been on the podcast recently. And the most recent expert chat we had was with Bonnie. We had a conversation with her live with our members on how to navigate organizational politics. Bonnie's so good at that, as many of you have heard in our past Q&A episodes. We recorded that conversation. In addition to that recording, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of recordings from recent years with past guests who have come together and answered questions from our members live. It's not me answer, asking the questions. It's our members asking the questions directly. In addition, access to those monthly as those continue to come out. It's one of the top benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you'd like to find out more, go over to coachingforleaders.plus, and I'll look forward to seeing you inside. Have a great week, and I'll see you back on Monday.